You are now listening to British Brothers, the True Cry Podcast. Hello everyone and welcome to British Murders, the podcast that focuses exclusively on British murder cases and serial killers. I'm your host Stuart Blues and this is the 10th and final episode of season 8. Before we get into it, let's break the ice as always. The show's first opening icebreaker segment is this. Two facts that sound like bullshit. Did you know that dolphins sleep with one eye open? To continue breathing while sleeping, many aquatic mammals use what's called unihemispheric sleep. That is, they sleep while still swimming, resting only half of their brain at a time, while the other half remains awake. Bet you didn't know that. Now it's time for the show's final opening icebreaker segment. Random quote of the day. We make up horrors to help us cope with the real ones. That's a quote from legendary horror writer Stephen King. This case was suggested by five of my listeners. Billy Hyde, Scott Jerry and Kimberly Camfield requested it via email. Rich requested it via Instagram and Tracy requested it via BritishMurders.com. Usually I let a random spinning wheel select my episodes, but I figured this one needs covering seeing as though so many people have requested it. We're in the Wiltshire town of Swindon this week, located in southwest England. Here are five quickfire facts about Swindon. Number one, Swindon's Magic Roundabout has been named one of the scariest road junctions in Britain. It was built in 1972. Number two, originally Swindon was referred to as Swindoon in the Doomsday Book, later Swine Town, meaning Pig Hill. The town apparently used to be swarming with pigs. Number three, the band Oasis took their name from the Oasis Leisure Centre in Swindon. Liam Gallagher saw the venue advertised on a tour poster, and the rest is history. But did you know Oasis were originally called The Rain? I certainly didn't. Number four, after the original facilities were destroyed by a bombing in Southampton, production of the famous Spitfire was moved to the Swindon village of South Marston. 121 Spitfires were produced in the town. And number five, Swindon has its own beer festival. The 2023 festival will be the town's 35th. As of the 2021 census, the estimated population of the Swindon urban area was 206,101. Let me quickly advise you that this podcast contains elements that may be alarming to some listeners. As always, listener discretion is advised. Before we get going, I just want to say that I'll only be talking about the two murders our villain was convicted of. I won't be discussing any other murders or missing persons whom he is thought to have been responsible for. I will, however, point you in the direction of some further reading at the end of the episode. I also appreciate that this episode is a tad longer than normal, but it's a season finale. Come on, let's live a little. It's also one hell of a complex case. The full name of our villain this week is Christopher John Halliwell. Born in 1964 to his parents, Alan and Zofia, Christopher was welcomed to the world roughly a year after their wedding. RAF worker Alan and his wife, Sophia, brought another child into the world in 1965, a daughter they named Sarah. According to his younger sister, there was something not quite right about Christopher from the start. Like many murderers, especially serial killers, 
Christopher had a history of torturing and killing animals much smaller than him. He would frequently catch spiders, but not to remove them from the house using the old glass and coaster technique. His intentions were darker. He would slowly remove the spider's legs one by one. If he came across a butterfly, he would subject it to the same treatment by removing its legs and also its wings. As he was doing this, Sarah said her brother would have a stone-cold expression on his face, seemingly feeling no emotion or remorse whatsoever. The youngster had the cold, dead eyes of a shark, even back then it seems. But what caused this behaviour? Was Christopher born evil? Had he settled the nature versus nurture argument once and for all? Not necessarily. You see, when the two siblings were young, their parents, Alan and Zafia, separated. Soon after, they were forced to move to Scotland with their mum, who soon found a new partner and settled in the region of Galloway in southwestern Scotland. Christopher was subjected to daily abuse, both physically and verbally, leaving his mental state forever scarred. Having said that, Sarah also appears to have received her fair share of abuse north of the border, but she didn't grow up to become a double murderer and suspected serial killer. Some of the abuse included Christopher being struck with a leather belt for misbehaving. His mum and her new husband were reportedly strict and brutal disciplinarians. It's safe to say that the abuse affected Christopher's demeanour as the already reclusive child only withdrew into his shell further. He became detached and emotionless. Throughout his teenage years, Christopher lived with his family in Dalbite and attended a local high school. Like his sister, his fellow pupils deemed him to be rather strange and a bit of a loner. He kept to himself and didn't actively go out of his way to make friends. At 15, Christopher was placed with a foster family by Zafia as she claimed she could no longer cope with him. He hated his mum for it and swore revenge. Whether he succeeded is not for me to say. Once he'd finished high school, Christopher secured a job working at Carson Butchers in Dalbiti for a few months. During his time there, he learned some crucial knife skills from the butchers and was asked to prepare various food items for the shop. Not long after that job ended, Christopher moved 320 miles south of Dalbiti to Swindon, where he secured various roles as a window cleaner, a builder, a labourer. He became a keen angler, whose knowledge of the local fishing spots grew by the day. That's a fact worth remembering later on in the story. Another fact is that Christopher enjoyed driving, and often did freelance taxicab work for various companies. Whilst working as a taxi driver, Christopher would scout houses he deemed worthy of robbing and case them out from afar, waiting for the right moment to break in. Burglaries weren't the only crimes he committed back in those early days. He also stole cars and tried to withdraw ridiculous sums from his bank account by signing fake withdrawal slips. His first prison sentence came in the mid-80s when one of his burglaries went wrong and he got caught. Dartmoor Prison in Devon was where he was sent, a place he remained in until 1987. Interestingly, in 1986, Christopher made some comments to his then cellmate that would later cause concerns that he had killed more than the two people he was later convicted of killing. He said things to his cellmate including, Have you ever had sex with a woman while strangling her? And, How many do you have to kill to be a serial killer? Not exactly your bog-standard conversation starters. Throughout his petty crime spree of the 1980s, Christopher used several aliases in an attempt to cover his tracks and prevent his arrest. Such names included Christopher John Bentley, Michael John Davis and Peter James Mann. 
Crucially, Christopher's DNA was not taken and placed on the UK's National DNA Database because, at the time of his arrest, it hadn't been introduced. One can only wonder how many tragedies could have perhaps been avoided had it been around back then. Christopher's first serious relationship began after he met shop assistant Lisa Byrne, whom he married in 1991. The pair raised three children in their home, two daughters and a son, but Christopher's loner status remained from childhood. It's something he wouldn't grow out of until much later in his life. The couple remained married for around 15 years before separating in the early 2000s after Lisa discovered Christopher had been unfaithful to her. Neighbours of the Halliwells recalled how the couple appeared to have many problems and it was inevitable that they would separate at some point. As for who Christopher cheated on Lisa with, I can't say for sure, but based on the fact he soon began a new relationship with a woman named Heather Widowson, who lived just a few houses down, I'd suggest it may have been her. That is conjecture though, for the record. It was roughly 2005 when Christopher moved in with Heather and her three daughters, which must have been extremely awkward for Lisa and his own kids. He explained to Heather how he had been regularly beaten by his mum from toddler age until he moved away from home as a teenager. Heather has gone on record saying that Christopher never raised so much as a finger to her, he never got angry with her, he never abused her, and was seemingly the perfect partner. His confidence had grown by that point, and he developed a womanising personality. By 2010, Christopher had attempted to start his own chauffeur business, but the venture was a non-starter. Soon after, he filed for bankruptcy and decided to start fresh by doing what he knew best, being a taxi driver for other people's firms. Often choosing to work the late shift, Christopher's knowledge of Swindon's red light areas was vast. He frequently utilised the services of the town's sex workers and was known by many of them. The nightclub taxi runs were a perfect place for Christopher to pick up women on their own, or failing that, sex workers that he would become increasingly rough with. Quite often, Christopher had to be told to back off by the workers, such were the vulgarity of his exploits. I'm going to leave it there for now as far as Christopher is concerned and introduce you to a young woman named Becky Godden Edwards. Born Rebecca Louise Godden on April 4th, 1982, Becky's early life was a stuff of dreams. Her mum and dad, Karen and John Godden, got married four years before her birth in 1978 and had their first child, a son they named Stephen, a year later in 1979. The family lived in Swindon, but John regularly stayed in Newport, South Wales, located 60 miles west of Swindon. He had to stay there because of work, which left Karen with the kids most of the time. Struggling to cope on her own, Karen decided to move with the kids to Newport so they could live together as a family. A couple of years later, Karen and the kids moved back to Swindon. By the time Becky was six and Stephen was nine, Karen and John had separated. That had a huge mental effect on Becky, although you wouldn't have necessarily known it by looking at her. She did her best to put on a brave face and excelled at junior school, although she would sometimes suddenly burst into tears when on her own. Becky was well liked at school by her fellow pupils and teachers. Her work ethic was immense and she was certainly a clever girl. Reading was one of her favourite pastimes. You'd be hard pressed to find her without a book in front of her face, even if she'd been told it was lights out time. She'd secretly continue reading under the covers as Karen watched on with a smirk. Karen wanted to keep Becky's childhood as normal as possible, by which I mean she didn't want either of her kids to miss out on anything because they had parents who were separated. The three of them would go on summer bike rides, Becky would go to brownies and gymnastics. Her infectious laugh earned her the nickname The Giggler, 
It was something she never lost despite her future troubles, which I'll come on to shortly. Things took a drastic turn for the worse when Becky began attending high school. She was bullied by some other girls at the school who did some horrendous things to her. On one occasion, Becky was forced to remove her cardigan so the bullies could smear it in dog shit. They then forced Becky to put the cardi back on. She'd only been at the school for a few weeks. Karen then got a call saying Becky had run away after the encounter. Becky remained at the school briefly, but the bullying continued. Karen had had enough. She walked into Becky's school one day, removed her from the class, and she did not return. Another school took her on, but the same issues cropped up. The jump from junior school to high school was massive for Becky. She was missing her dad more than ever, and the new, unfamiliar surroundings were too much to bear. Towards the end of that first school year, the pupils in year 7 are aged 11 to 12, Becky attempted to end her life. Finding whatever medicine she could from the bathroom cabinet at home, she swallowed various pills, including paracetamol, ibuprofen, antihistamines, sleeping pills and imodium. Thankfully, Karen spotted her unconscious on the floor and managed to revive her before taking her to A&E. A psychologist assessed her mental health while she was recovering in the hospital, though I'm not sure what the outcome of that assessment was. Returning to school didn't help matters. Becky once again attempted to end her own life, only this time she slashed her arms. Once more, her life was saved. Karen would eventually meet a man named Charlie Edwards, whom she married on March 19, 1997. Charlie had three daughters of his own and got on really well with Becky. Finally, she had a stable father figure in her life. The family moved to an old farmhouse and, fed up with the bullying, Karen decided to remove Becky from mainstream education altogether. Instead, she would be homeschooled. Karen would end up being Becky's teacher after the youngster didn't take to the tutor she'd hired. Eventually, Becky went on to attend one of the Stratton Education Centre schools. The reason was that she couldn't sit her exams if she was homeschooled, and with aspirations of becoming a vet, for Becky it was needs must. She thrived in the new environment and appeared to be back to her old self. The teachers loved her and she excelled at her schoolwork. That all changed when she heard about her dad and his new partner having a baby, a girl. Becky's feelings of being pushed out by her dad rushed back to the surface and her behaviour changed drastically for the worse. The usually cuddly and giggly Becky had become rather cheeky and frequently answered back to her mum and Charlie. She wasn't acting like her usual self. A discovery one day in a den Becky had made shocked Karen to the core. She found numerous empty spray cans scattered all over the place. Becky and her friends had been abusing solvents in the den. That was the first time Karen became aware of Becky using drugs, but it wasn't the first time she would make such a discovery. During a routine room clean, Karen moved Becky's bed and discovered a plastic bag containing some unfamiliar items. Inside were cigarette papers, lighters, a pet rabbit's water bottle with a pen casing taped to it, and a ball of silver paper. It was Becky's secret heroin smoking kit. She had been introduced to the drug by her new boyfriend, Martin, who she had in turn been introduced to by Holly, one of her friends. At that point, Becky's drug addiction rapidly worsened and she would often disappear for weeks at a time without saying a word. Karen would then randomly get a call to collect her daughter and brought her back home. Chats would occur about her getting clean and how this was not like her, but any progress made was almost inevitably followed by Becky running away to Martin and taking more drugs. 
On one occasion, Karen and Stephen managed to rescue Becky from a locked room inside a random trap house after she informed her mum that she needed 500 quid urgently as she was in serious trouble. Had they not rescued her, it's believed she may have been sex trafficked. At one point during this turbulent period of her life, Becky was raped by a drug dealer while waiting for Martin inside the dealer's house. Martin was a drug runner, by the way. The dealer raped Becky at knife point and was not charged with the offence, even though Becky attended his trial as a witness. He was only found guilty of possessing class A's. The newfound confidence Becky had acquired before the incident with the dealer led to her securing an office job, but she lost it after that hearing as she reverted back to taking drugs. Another attempt to take her own life happened one day when she locked herself in the family bathroom. She attempted to hang herself using the thick cord of the light switch string around her neck, but her weight was too much for the light fixing. Another attempt came when Becky was 18. She'd been in and out of her family's life by that point and had called them to collect her from Bristol one evening. Attempts at weaning her off drugs failed and Becky took an overdose quantity of paracetamol. She'd witnessed her then-boyfriend, not Martin, cheating on her, which prompted the attempt. Becky was arrested in 2002 when she was 20 for her minor role in the burglary of a local pub. When assessed by a psychologist, it was said that her emotional age was similar to that of a 12 to 14 year old. After being bailed, Becky went on the run, breaching her conditions. She was eventually found, arrested and sent to a remand prison to await her court date. That court appearance took place on December 16, 2002 and was attended by Karen. Becky was handed a fine, which Karen paid, and they left the courthouse together. Wanting to introduce her new boyfriend, Jason, to her mum, Becky begged her to take her to see him. Reluctantly agreeing, Karen insisted they could only stay for half an hour, which was soon upgraded to an hour after Becky pleaded some more. Karen's heart sank when Becky turned to her and said, I love you so much, mum. I can't keep putting you through this. I keep doing this to you. I'll come home when I'm clean. She had decided to stay with Jason and continue her life of drugs. Neither of them knew it, but it was the last time they'd see each other. For Karen, it was the last time she'd see her daughter alive. The story will continue after these quick messages. And now, back to the story. It's now time for me to introduce the third person involved in this week's story. Born in Swindon on June 3rd, 1988, Sharno Callahan grew up in a loving family with her mum, Elaine, her older brother, Liam, and her two younger siblings, Laura and Aidan. I'm unsure as to what her parents' relationship was growing up, as I believe Elaine now has a partner called Pete that isn't Sharn's dad, but it's not really relevant to the story. Growing up in her hometown, Sharn was similar to Becky in that she attended brownies, but the similarities essentially stopped there given what we know about Becky's struggles. Upon completing high school, Sean was in two minds about whether or not she wanted to attend college. She ended up going, albeit only briefly, but decided it was not for her. Instead, she sought employment and secured an entry-level position in a firm's admin team, which she enjoyed. She was a happy character and a pleasure to be around, as evidenced by the volume of friends she had. I'm going to jump ahead a fair bit with Sean as there's not too much else to divulge about her childhood and early life. Let's skip ahead to January 2011, the month when Sean moved into a flat in Swindon's Old Town area with her boyfriend Kevin Reap. Kevin was a quantity surveyor who had been in a relationship with Sean for two and a half years before they moved in together. 
The doting couple were incredibly happy together and were excited to have begun the next stage of their life. Sean loved kids, so there's no doubt in that the conversation around having kids of their own will have cropped up at some point. Moving in was step one, starting a family was likely step two. Our main timeline began on Friday, March 18th, 2011. Sean had gone to work as normal, as had Kevin, and afterwards she decided to go for a meal with some of her friends at Harvester Swindon, a chain restaurant. Nights out like this weren't common for Sean because she was saving up for a a once-in-a-lifetime trip to New York City with Kevin. After their meal, the friends decided to head down to Suju, a former nightclub in the town centre that closed its doors for good in March 2021. It's now a bar-slash-club-slash-lounge called Kiyoki, with a Balinese twist. Sean and her friends remained in the club until the early hours. At the same time, Christopher Halliwell, who was 47 then, was working the late shift as a taxi driver. The taxi firm would later divulge his activities that night to the police during their subsequent investigation. Christopher collected his last passenger at 1.10am on Saturday, March 19th, 2011. Having dropped them off, he called the cab office at 1.58am and advised them he'd be making his way home in half an hour. 15 minutes later, at 2.13am, he turned his car's GPS tracking system off, which is how it stayed until 6.53pm that evening when he began his next shift. Here's the thing, he didn't go home. Instead, he drove around Swindon on the hunt for a young woman to attack. But let's not jump that far ahead just yet. Sean sent Kevin a text at 1.24am that morning asking where he was. He hadn't been on the night out with Sean, but perhaps she wanted him to come and collect her. They only lived a 15 minute walk away from the club, but Sean had become separated from her mates around that time. In a move that goes against friend etiquette, Sean's friends left the club at 2.12am without her. CCTV footage from the nightclub showed Sean leaving on her own half an hour later at 2.52am, having decided to call it a night and walk home. Kevin wasn't a fan of Sean walking home by herself late at night, or early in the morning as it were, even though they lived so close. The high street was empty and remained that way until a car suddenly pulled over near to where Sean was walking. She had made it as far as the Goddard Arms, a pub just up the road from Suju, and was caught on CCTV at the same time the car's headlights pulled into view. The lights made it difficult to see what was going on, but when the car pulled away, there was no Sean to be seen. CCTV from other buildings further up the road towards Sean and Kevin's flat saw no evidence that Sean made it further than the Goddard Arms, indicating that she got into the car. Whether or not she did so voluntarily is only known by Christopher Halliwell, the man behind the wheel. Given he was driving a taxi, some believe that Sean may have felt like she was doing the right thing by getting a lift home instead of walking. Also, Christopher's was a familiar face to Sean. He was the dad of one of her friends, so she semi-knew him. Instead of driving north, Christopher headed south towards Savernake Forest. Back at the flat, Kevin woke up and was troubled when he realised that Sean was still not home. He checked his phone and saw the message she sent at 1.24am and replied at 3.24am by saying, In bed, you? She'd asked where he was, remember? It would later be revealed that Sean's phone pinged off a mobile phone mast in Cadley, Marlborough, some 40 miles south of Suju when she received that text from Kevin. Over an hour later, Sean had still not returned home nor had she replied to Kevin's message. At 4.40am, Kevin sent another message which simply read, Worried. A sleepless morning followed with concern growing by the minute as Sean had still not come home. 
Kevin desperately rang round Shan's family members and friends to see if they knew where she was, but to no avail. Kevin and others made endless call attempts to Shan's mobile that Saturday until her phone ran out of battery at 2.36pm. Earlier in the day, Kevin had phoned the police at 9.45am to report Shan as missing. Liam, Shan's older brother, told his mum over the phone about what was going on, and she soon rushed home. Elaine had set off that Saturday morning on a weekend-long trip up to Warwickshire. Police officers were at her house when she returned home, and they were asking all sorts of questions about Shan's life and behaviours. Kevin agreed to visit the local police station to help them with their inquiries, and he was quickly eliminated as a suspect after his phone and computer were analysed. Cadley sits on the edge of Savernake Forest, and given only 32 minutes had passed between the last time Shan was seen leaving Suju and her phone pinging at the mast, it's only logical that she must have made the trip in a vehicle. The nearby forest was searched, but the only thing police found was a pair of ripped knickers. Whether they related to Shan or not, I'm not sure. The missing person investigation was named Operation Mayan, and the senior investigating officer, SIO, was Detective Superintendent Steve Fulcher of Wiltshire Police. In the CCTV footage I referred to earlier, the one in which Christopher's taxi's headlights made it difficult to see what was going on, one officer noticed a reflection on a nearby bank's window which revealed a dark-looking car with a small blemish on its side. The officer soon realised it looked like a taxicab's markings, which helped narrow down their search. At first, 14 cars were added to a suspect list based on the timings and CCTV footage until one officer had the idea to ask if there were any patrol cars in the area at the time Shan disappeared with ANPR cameras attached. As luck would have it, there was. Through a rigorous process of elimination, the police had worked out that the Toyota Avensis seen approaching Shan O'Callaghan belonged to one Christopher Halliwell, a local taxi driver. Rather than arresting Christopher, D.S. Fulcher decided to place him under covert surveillance as he hoped that Sean was still alive and that Christopher would inadvertently lead them right to her. Part of the surveillance plan was to put a tracker on his car, but it proved too difficult to apply without being spotted. The idea of putting surveillance equipment inside the house was quickly dismissed as Heather and her three daughters lived there and didn't seem to be acting in a suspicious way. If Shan were being held at the house, Heather and the kids would surely know, so the house was ruled out as a hiding place. On Monday, March 21st, 2011, two days after abducting Shan, Christopher was spotted by the surveillance team giving his taxi a rigorous clean with some harsh-looking chemicals. He was also spotted removing and disposing of some car seat covers whilst placing some of the others on a small fire. Each time Christopher deposited something in a bin, the surveillance team recovered it shortly after. One item recovered was a bottle of perfume, which may have been Shan's. Later forensic tests would reveal that some of Shan's blood was present on the car seat covers. Whilst those tests were underway, DS Fulcher still believed that Shan was alive and being kept somewhere against her will. The covert surveillance continued, and on March 24th, Christopher was spotted entering a Boots pharmacy. Officers quickly recovered the receipt he placed in a bin and were concerned to see that he'd purchased what has been described as an overdose quantity of paracetamol and sleepies. The active ingredient in sleepies, a medicine used to help aid sleep, is diphenhydramine hydrochloride, an antihistamine. D.S. Fulcher did not want Christopher to take the pills in an attempt to take his own life, so he ordered some of his officers to arrest him. Christopher Halliwell was arrested in the car park of an Asda supermarket at 11.06am 
on Thursday, March 24, 2011. As he was cautioned by the officers, they noticed a couple of Help Find Sean posters on display in the rear window of his car. Rather than taking him immediately to Gable Cross, a nearby police station, the officers subjected Christopher to what is known as an urgent interview. Code C of the Police and Criminal Evidence Act 1984, referred to more commonly as PACE, states that an urgent interview can be authorised if a legal advisor is not present at the police station when new information comes to light that might lead to one of the listed consequences if the interview is delayed. Urgent interviews can be conducted either before arriving at the police station or once at the police station and before receiving any requested legal advice. However, urgent interviews should not be seen as an opportunity to ask lines of investigation questions. Questioning must cease once the relevant risk has been averted or the necessary questions have been put in to attempt to avert that risk. Christopher told the officers he didn't know where Sean was and requested a solicitor, so was placed in a police car and taken there. On the way, D.S. Fulcher decided that he wanted to speak with Christopher himself. D.S. Fulcher felt that Christopher was hiding Sean at Barbary Castle, a scheduled hill fort in Wiltshire. After ordering a driver to drop them off there, D.S. Fulcher cautioned Christopher again and spoke to him one-on-one -on -one for around four hours before the suspect finally said, have you got a car? We'll go. The subsequent journey led D.S. Fulcher and his team to a steep verge near a farm where they would later find the body of Sean O'Callaghan. Lying face down, Sean's partially naked body had been dumped there with minimal effort being made to conceal her. All the clothes on the lower half of her body, including her boots, had been removed and were missing, as was her bra. Christopher confessed that he had killed Sean by stabbing her in the back of the head with a knife shortly after she entered his vehicle in the early hours of March 19th. He was adamant that the pair had not engaged in any sexual activity, which the post-mortem later confirmed. As his team were securing the scene, D.S. Fulcher was approached by Christopher, who said, You and I should have a chat. After being driven somewhere secluded nearby, Christopher continued, I'm a sick fucker. Is it too late to get help? D.S. Fulcher was then taken aback when, out of the blue, Christopher said, Do you want another one? D.S. Fulcher did not caution Christopher again after hearing that, which would come back to haunt him later on. As he had with Sean, Christopher led the officers to another remote field, only this time he knew exactly where he was going. With Sean, it had been a rough idea, with the officers finding her on their own a short while after. On this occasion, Christopher led the police directly to the spot he'd buried another woman he'd killed some eight years earlier. No specifics were provided by Christopher regarding the woman's identity. He didn't even know for sure when he'd killed her. The best he could offer was that he'd killed her in either 2003, 4 or 5. He recalled having picked up the woman, a sex worker, and strangled her to death using his hands after having sex. This murder was one that Christopher liked to think about from time to time by visiting the burial site. The last time he'd been there was in 2008, three years before his arrest. 20 centimetres beneath the surface were the skeletal remains of Becky Godden Edwards, who was identified by DNA recovered from her bone marrow. Remember, Becky was on the DNA database after her arrest in 2002. Becky's head, hands and feet were all missing, and to this day, it is not known as to why. But there are three theories. One, wild animals remove them. Two, a farmer 
accidentally and unknowingly ploughed parts of Becky's remains, and three, Christopher Halliwell removed them for some reason and has not disclosed where they are. I'll leave it to you to decide which one you think is correct. Here's an interesting tidbit regarding Becky's grave. Christopher said he was going to lead them to a five foot deep grave, but as I said, it was only 20 centimetres deep. That has caused many to believe that Christopher was getting confused with another woman he'd killed, which is backed up by his uncertainty regarding when exactly he killed Becky. With two bodies now recovered, Christopher was finally taken back to Gable Cross Police Station. Once there, he refused to sign a confession. He went against everything he'd said and started replying to all questions with classic no-comment responses. When Sean O'Callaghan's post-mortem results came back, the level of her injuries was revealed. Her cause of death was two stab wounds to the back of her head, combined with neck compression. She had deep bruising on her face, neck and body, consistent with being repeatedly punched and or kicked. Her skull had been fractured by her attacker, but it's not clear how exactly that injury was sustained. A partial DNA match to Christopher Halliwell was then sourced from a sample taken from Sean's left breast. The post-mortem confirmed that Sean had not been sexually assaulted, as I mentioned earlier, but a mark, thought to have been caused by biting, was present on her body. Christopher refused to provide a dental impression. Even so, items recovered from his taxi linked him to Sean as her DNA was found on them. Sean's body was formally identified by Pete, the partner of Elaine, Sean's mum, and Christopher was charged with her murder on Sunday, March 27th, 2011. He was asked if he had moved Sean's body at any point, to which he replied he had. That baffled D.S. Fulcher, as he'd been subjected to around-the-clock surveillance. However, there was a brief period of one hour and eight minutes on Tuesday, March 22nd, when the surveillance was lost. It was during that small window that Christopher moved Sean's body from Savonick Forest to The Verge. A vigil for Sean was held a week after she was murdered, and on March 31st, Christopher Halliwell gave away more clues to indicate that he is a serial killer rather than a double murderer. His calls and letters from prison were being monitored, and in one exchange he was noted as saying, The police want to interview me about eight murders. That means that, as a minimum, there are six more bodies out there that have yet to be found, each of them murdered at the hands of Christopher Halliwell. On April 4th, 2011, on what would have been Becky Gordon Edwards' 29th birthday, D.S. Fulcher knocked on the door of Karen Edwards and her family. He broke the news that the second body found was Becky's. It was revealed to D.S. Fulcher by other sex workers that Christopher was allegedly obsessed with Becky and used her services regularly. The private funeral of Sean O'Callaghan was held on April 18th, 2011. The streets were lined with hundreds of mourners as the cortege drove slowly past. At a plea and case management hearing at Bristol Crown Court on July 31st, 2011, D.S. Fulcher was asked to leave the courtroom. Christopher's defence argued that everything he had told D.S. Fulcher, including the location of both bodies and admitting to two murders, was inadmissible due to the SIO's breaching of pace. A voir dire is a separate hearing in which the trier of law determines whether evidence is admissible and can potentially be entered into evidence in the trial. The first voir dire took place on January 31st, 2012 at Bristol Crown Court and the outcome was shocking. Judge Mrs Justice Laura Cox explained that she felt D.S. Fulcher had breached pace and therefore some of the evidence put forward was inadmissible. Judge Cox said, 
While Detective Superintendent Fulcher was entitled to adopt an approach which would lead to the gathering of intelligence and information, what resulted was not, in my judgment, such as can fairly constitute admissible evidence in a criminal trial. The confession would have such an adverse effect on the fairness of these proceedings that it ought not to be admitted. For all these reasons, the application made on behalf of the defendant at this voir dire is granted. The second voir dire took place in April 2012, again at Bristol Crown Court, which led to the Crown Prosecution Service making the decision to drop Becky's murder charge from the case against Christopher Halliwell. Sean's murder was still something he was to be tried for, however, after he pleaded not guilty. Five months later, on October 19, 2012, Christopher Halliwell finally pleaded guilty to having murdered Sean O'Callaghan. Judge Cox initially wanted to hand him a life sentence with a minimum term of 30 years, but because he'd spared Sean's family the torment of a trial, his minimum term was lessened to 25 years. In her closing statement, Judge Cox said, I am satisfied on the evidence, viewed cumulatively, that this was a murder involving sexual conduct. The prosecution do not suggest that there is, here, any evidence of overt sexual activity. Sexual conduct can, however, take many forms, and again, I view the evidence cumulatively. Had Shan survived, this evidence would have amounted to evidence of a sexual assault. Kevin Reap, Shan's boyfriend, said after the sentencing, Words cannot describe the pain and anguish I felt during these six days she was missing. My heart was ripped out. My life has been destroyed. Sean was a beautiful, happy-go-lucky person who could cheer up the most miserable of people. I will spend the rest of my life being grateful for the time we had together. D.S. Fulcher was then subjected to an investigation by the Independent Police Complaints Commission, IPCC, with their findings expected to be published in January 2013. In the meantime, Christopher's sentence was upheld at the Court of Appeal on December 14, 2012. January 2013 came and went. No report had yet been published. On April 23, 2013, the medical cause of Becky's death was unascertained, but probably caused unlawfully by a third party. She is thought to have died at some point in 2003. In September 2013, the IPCC's report was finally published, and it wasn't good news for DS Fulcher. The long and short of it is that the reviewer thought there was a case to answer for gross misconduct. In a disciplinary hearing that took place on January 20th, 2014, D.S. Fulcher was informed by his superiors that his behaviour fell below the standard of professional behaviour in respect of duties and responsibilities. His conduct was regarded as gross misconduct. In a bizarre twist, he wasn't fired. Instead, he was given a written final warning. D.S. Fulcher left the police less than four months later after handing in a resignation letter on May 2nd, 2014. Around that time, police had discovered some items in a remote pond just off Hilldrop Lane in Ramsbury, Marlborough. The pond was drained and almost 60 items were recovered, including a pair of boots that were later confirmed as being the one Sean was wearing on the night she was killed. Other items, including a single-barreled shotgun and a cardigan, were recovered, with the latter believed to have belonged to Becky. Remember how I said Christopher had a vast knowledge of local waterways? It's thought that this one pond is where he dumped some of his other potential victims' belongings. Given that most of the other items have not been disclosed to the public, one wonders how many belong to other missing women who Christopher has perhaps murdered. After years of fighting from Karen Edwards and a change in judges, Christopher Halliwell was finally charged with Becky's murder on March 31st, 2016. 
His Honour Sir John Griffith Williams overturned Judge Cox's previous ruling and explained that all the evidence that had previously been called inadmissible could now be used in court. Unsurprisingly, Christopher pleaded not guilty to Becky's murder on April 2nd, 2016, and when the trial started on September 5th, 2016, he opted to represent himself. Two weeks after the trial began, the jury returned with their verdict after deliberating for just two hours. They found Christopher Halliwell guilty of murdering Becky Gordon Edwards. Handing Christopher a whole life order on September 23rd, 2016, His Honour Sir John Griffith Williams said, I conclude you must have attacked Rebecca Godden. That attack must have been prompted by her refusing you sex. When she put up a struggle, you killed her. You clearly intended to kill her. I add that I am certain she struggled desperately in an attempt to save her life, but she was physically no match for you. Christopher Halliwell is currently being held in HM Prison Long Latin in Worcestershire, where he'll spend the rest of his life. And that was the story of British murderer Christopher Halliwell. Thanks again, Billy, Scott, Kimberly, Rich and Tracy for suggesting that case. I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. Much, much longer than a normal episode. As I said, it's a finale. We're allowed it. I read through three full books to research this episode and this is the further reading I alluded to at the start of the episode. If you want to know more about this complex case, here's three books I highly recommend you pick up. The first is Catching a Serial Killer by D.S. Steve Fulcher. The second is A Killer's Confession by Karen Edwards, Becky's mum. And the third is The New Millennium Serial Killer by Bethan Truman and Chris Clark. Bethan Truman is a name you may recognise. She's co-host of the Seeing Red podcast. I'm in talks with Bethan and Chris regarding having them on the show to discuss the book and case, so watch this space. As I said, all three of those books were vital resources for this episode. They are listed in my references, and at some point I will give them away as competition prizes. I've got seven new reviews to read this week. Janine left a five-star review on BritishMurders.com titled Outstanding. It reads, Love listening to your podcasts. Look forward to them every week. Nice to hear a familiar home accent as I live in Australia now and miss the good old north of England. A case suggestion, Sarah Payne. Keep up the great work. I've added that to my spreadsheet for you, Janine. Scoogle left a five-star review on BritishMurders.com titled, I'm a true Stu Blue fan. My old German teacher used to call me Stu Blue. It reads, This is so good. Stu is a great reteller of the stories each week and I love the extra sound bites. I tell everyone to listen. Keep it up. Liv left a five-star review on BritishMurders.com titled, Amazing. It reads, I love all of your episodes. They are so interesting, and I love how you give even the worst murderer's side of the story. I have a cool idea for one of your episodes, and here's a link to it. I come from Retford. It was fascinating to read this, and I'd love it if you could do it. Thanks. I've had a quick look at the link you sent, Liv, but it doesn't appear to be a murder case. I feel awful saying that, but this is British murders after all. Josephine from Burnley left a five-star review on BritishMurders.com titled Down to Earth. It reads, no pretentiousness here, a great attitude being his authentic self, natural approach with a passion for his work. Love it, and I am a fan now, but my deepest sympathy to all the victims whose lives have been ripped apart. Well said, Josephine. Louise left a five-star review on BritishMurders.com titled Bloody Brilliant. It reads, found you by accident, and my God, I hope this podcast never finishes. I'm listening to you now as I write this. I listen every chance I get. I love that it's all in the UK and your collaborations. 
please could you do an episode or one of your out of series episodes on Fred and Rose West? Keep up this amazing podcast and the icebreaker bits are amazing. Your luck is in, Louise. I'm doing a two-part special on Fred and Rose West with part one coming out next week. That's my end of season special for season eight. Sid Gates left a five-star review on Apple Podcasts USA titled Found a New Fave. It reads, snarky, informative, and great flow. Does snarky mean something different in America? I thought that was a bad thing. Definitely recommend, especially to those outside the UK, as these are mostly crimes I have not heard of before. And Florence McMillan recommended British Murders on Facebook by saying, the best part of this podcast is how you give a little bit of context of the community where the case has taken place. It's really good to hear that people are enjoying the little icebreakers and the facts about the places. I appreciate you saying that. Thank you. Thank you, Janine, Scoogle, Liv, Josephine, Louise, Sid Gates and Florence for leaving the show such lovely reviews. Suppose you'd like to leave a review of the show and have it read on a future episode. You can do so on iTunes, Facebook, Podchaser or at BritishMurders.com. You can also leave star ratings on Spotify. If you'd like to support the show on Patreon or donate on a one-off basis via Buy Me A Coffee, you can find the links for each on my website. Thank you and welcome to my newest Patreon members, Claire McRae and Laura K. Rushton. And also shout out to Claire and Rhea. Please continue emailing case suggestions to BritishMurdersPodcast at gmail.com or message me via social media. You'll not only get the episode covered, but you'll get a cheeky shout out too. And relax. That's it for another episode. I've been Stuart Blues. This has been British Murders. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time. Cheerio.